0: Well, I like the, uh, the fact that I announced that I'm going, and the next song that Fiona chooses is Oh Happy Day. <laughs> um, so we better pray, haven't we, before I begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it, uh, humanly speaking, but we know that they're words that come direct from you. Lord, may they be words which are brought direct into our hearts tonight by the power of your Holy Spirit. As we listen uh, to your words being explained, in the name of Christ, Amen. Uh, you need Hebrews one, uh, open in front of you, which is on page number the the page with no page number, which is actually uh, twelve hundred and one. One day, there was a man uh, wandering through some woods uh, when his eye caught uh, sight of something glinting through the dead leaves. So, of course, he bent down, cleared the debris away, and picked up a golden lamp. So he rubbed the golden lamp, as you do, and out popped a genie, as they do. And the genie said, well, you can ask for whatever you like, but be warned, you can only have three wishes. So the man replied, well, I'd like a better better genie. Well, look... (laughs) Well, it'll give me more than three. And one of my favorite ever advertising slogans is, uh, you can't put a better bit of butter on your knife. Do you remember that one? I don't remember what it advertised, but I remember the slogan. You can't put a better bit of butter on your knife. And we all want something better, don't we? In fact, we want the best. If there's something average and something that's better, we'll choose the better thing, won't we? Of course we will. And you'll hear the phrase "better than" a lot during our exploration of the Book of Hebrews, because we has, as we heard last week from Simon, I hope, it's very much a theme of this book. Jesus is better than the prophets uh, tonight. Jesus is better than the angels. In short, verse three says the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Well, this week, our author begins to explore a little bit more and expand that last point that he made in verse four, that Jesus is better than the angels. But why on earth do we need to know that Jesus is better than the angels? I mean, it seems so strange to our modern ears, doesn't it? After all, we don't give much thought to angels these days, do we, except maybe at Christmas. Do we really need to know that Jesus is better than the angels? Well, just look over, or down to the bottom of the page, in chapter 2, verse 1, where our author says, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. See, the issue here is drifting away from what we have heard, well, leaving what we have heard, and therefore drifting away. Um, the week before last, whilst I was on the holiday, we did some sailing on the boards uh, with my children and some friends of ours, and uh, and my son Alex, 12 year old, uh, was out in the boat with another 10 year old uh, in a topper dinghy, and sailing in very strong winds on the Tuesday of that week, and. Uh, and uh, uh, they were jibing all over the place. So I thought, that's a technical term, understand. understands. Um, and I thought, it's only going to be a matter of time before they both end up in the water. Sure enough, on about the fifth jibe, uh, the boat starts tipping over, uh, and I see boys jumping, falling, flailing uh, as they uh, tip into the water and land up in the water. I was in the rescue canoe nearby and uh, uh, following them. I wasn't worried at first, because I had every confidence in the boat. If the boys could only just get on back onto that boat, tip back up right again, they'd be fine. Just get back on the boat, they'd be fine. What got me worried was seeing the boat and the boys drifting downstream with the strong winds and the currents of the river as well, taking the boat faster downstream than the boys were travelling. At that point, I thought, I'd better jump in. So I did, and it was cold. People don't usually give up on their faith the first time they get tipped upside down by the first crisis that comes along. What causes more trouble is when they simply start to drift away without anyone really noticing, perhaps even without themselves noticing, as they gradually lose hold of some of their fundamental beliefs about Jesus. You see, the problem always comes back to two questions, I think, about Jesus who is he? And what did he come to do? You know, if you know somebody who's beginning to ask those type of questions about Jesus, who is he? What did he come to do? And beginning to doubt them. then that is the time for us as a Christian friend or a pastor to jump in the water with them and to try and bring them back, stop them from drifting downstream. It's that important. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is getting at here. And I wish that I'd been quicker to jump into that stream uh, with some people that I know of. Uh, over the last few years. For the writers of the Hebrews, this issue of Jesus being so much better than the angels was answering, in some ways, both of those fundamental questions. Who is he, and what did he come to do? Why? Because his readers were attracted to returning to Judaism. That's why it's called the book to the Hebrews. They were Jews who had become Christians, but were now tempted to return to the ways of Judaism. Why? In some ways, because it was easier. They wouldn't get such a hard time from their friends and their family. They'd fit more easily into the surrounding uh, Jewish culture. And yet they had a problem. And the problem was that they'd seen or they'd heard about Jesus. They'd been touched by his teaching, amazed by his miracles, convinced by his resurrection. They couldn't just ignore this Jesus. So one way of dealing with that is just to say, well, okay, we're He clearly had a special relationship with God. But actually, it wasn't that special because there were these angels. Perhaps he was like one of these angels. And in that intervening period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole topic of angels had reached something of a fever pitch. Perhaps you remember Paul throwing in a wobbly to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23 when he reminds them, the Sanhedrin, that the Sadducees don't believe in angels, and the Pharisees, of course, did. At which point, a massive argument immediately point, uh, breaks out, and the Pharisees stand up saying, we find nothing wrong with this man, Paul. Uh, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to them? I just love the way that Paul handles these people moments, you know, uh, and manages to get the whole uh, Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, uh, arguing between themselves when they're supposed to be judging him. So what are these angels? Well, an angel is a bringer of good news. A bringer of news. Not in the Trevor MacDonald sense, but in the messenger sense. They were God's messengers. Most notably, I suppose, uh, if you think about it, uh, appearing to Mary with some good news. And then a few months later, a whole load of, a whole load of angels turning up to speak to some shepherds in the fields. And there's other examples throughout the Bible. But these messengers were also doers. They were ministers, if you like. They were ministers to men. Chapter 1 and 14 here calls them ministering spirits. So think of an angel giving food to uh, the exhausted prophet Elijah shortly after he had ran away from that evil woman Jezebel. Or think about God's jailbreakers in the book of Acts. Sometimes these angels even won battles on behalf of God's people. I Think of 2 Kings 19 when uh, 187,000 Assyrians were struck down by a single angel in a single night. And messengers, of course, can actually be very important people. I don't know how many of you have read uh, Alistair Campbell's diaries about the Blair years. I enjoyed it. It was a great book. Um, and if you read that, apart from learning that Alistair Campbell single-handedly saved this country and the world um, um, several times without us noticing, you also learn about some of those uh, uh, peace negotiations that Tony Blair helped arrange leading up to uh, the Good Friday Agreement between the different Northern Irish agreements. And what you see there is a picture of Tony Blair, uh, not only organising the talks, getting everybody together, Uh, often spending many, many months or years convincing people that they need to attend these talks, ministering to them, if you like, but also acting as messenger between the different parties in in, uh, Stormont Castle as they were sitting in different rooms, refusing to meet in the same place, refusing to meet face-to-face with each other. So there you find Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, running between them with uh, scrappy pieces of paper, uh, giving them messengers, And, of course, what he was trying to do there, he was trying to act as mediator, trying to find a tiny bit of common ground between the different parties, the people who can sit in the same room as each other, see if they could be brought together on these serious issues. So the messenger uh, ministered to these people by bringing them together, but he also uh, mediated between them. He was the go-between between them. And so, according to the Bible, in some mysterious ways, angels are not only God's messengers and God's ministers to his people, but they're also mediators between us and God. And they did that by bringing us God's law. So in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2, Moses speaks about what he saw on Mount Sinai, and he speaks to the Lord, surrounded by a myriad of the holy ones, or angels, who were bowed down at his feet and received instruction. What in The law that Moses was going to give to the people. And then Stephen in Acts 7, the first uh, Christian martyr, uh, speaking again to the Sanhedrin, remembers this, and he speaks about how Moses received living words from the Lord from the angel on Mount Sinai, so from the angel. In Galatians 3 and verse 19, Paul says that the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. And unfortunately, Stephen remembers at the end of his last speech that the Jews ignored them and didn't obey those living words, he says. So if you like, the angels were mediators of the Old Testament law. In some ways, they were close to God and close to us. And they were able to bring us these life-giving words to us from God via Moses. And that's amazing, isn't it? We don't often think of them that way. Angels are ministers, they're messengers but they also mediate us in some uh, mysterious way. And they're clearly very powerful, not the kind of guys you're going to want to mess with. So it's not that surprising us, I guess, that some, Christ- some people here in the Christian church uh, that the writer of the Hebrews was writing to were tempted to think that, well, Jesus was a little bit like an angel. I mean, it kind of fits with this pattern, doesn't it? Even they, even today, some people get confused between Jesus and angels. If you, if you take the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that Jesus was fully God. And here, quoting that authoritative source or Wikipedia, uh, no expense spared in my research this week, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is God's only direct creation. So he was created by God. And then Jesus did the rest of creation on behalf of God. But he was a created being. Um, and that's what makes him God's only begotten son. They also believe that references in the Bible to the archangel uh, Michael uh, refer to Jesus, and his role as a mediator is restricted to only certain anointed Christians, and there's only a few of them in their beliefs. So do you see how Jesus has been uh, downgraded slightly, subtly associated with angelic beings rather than with God's divinity? So perhaps we do need to hear this message about Jesus being better than the angels. So let's have a look at it in a bit more detail. So verse 4, which Simon tackled last week, says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And then verses 5 through to 14 all expand on this point. So, three points I want to make. First, Jesus is the unique son of God. Secondly, Jesus is the eternal king of the universe. And thirdly, Jesus is the only saviour of God's people. So firstly, Jesus is the unique son of God. Look down at verses 4 to 5. Here what we find in these verses is that the uh, writer to Hebrews is using a large number of Old Testament passages, primarily the Psalms, uh, to apply them to Jesus in a, new, in a new way. So in verses 4 to 5, from Psalm 2, uh, verse 7, or the the, uh, Old Testament references at the bottom of the page, says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I become your father. Or again, from 2 Samuel 7 and 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. Many of you know that my father was a dentist, a local dentist here. Some of you may even have sat underneath his drill in the past. But in that case, if you had done, then you would have uh, had to make an appointment. And ring the doorbell on a big black door at 70 Earlham Road and be let in by the nice lady called Joan. And then you'll be told to wait in the waiting room before you're allowed to see my father. Well, I was born in that house. I remember playing on the stairs. The table that used to sit in the waiting room there is now my office desk. I remember playing on the electric chair, going up and down and swinging around and around. Joan was Auntie Joan. He used to come and babysit and once cooked me uh, chocolate on toast. She was easily convinced. I was my dad's son, as well as being his patient. But the relationship was of a totally different order. Jesus is not just God's messenger, he is God's son. And in those terms, he is worthy to be worshipped, verse 6. from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, let all God's angels worship him. The angels are heavenly beings. They are close to God and do his bidding and have awesome power. Not many beings have to say, do not be afraid, when they walk into a room. Which is why John tried to worship an angel in Revelation 19. And the angel says, no, don't. But the angels worship Jesus because he is the unique son of God. Second point, Jesus is the eternal king of the universe, verses 7 and 8. 8. In speaking of the angels, our author says, from Psalm, um, it's from Psalm 104, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But from Psalm 45, our author reminds us that Jesus is the king who sits on the throne, which will last forever and ever. As somebody put it, he was there to lay the foundation stone and he'll be there when the bulldozers move in. Verses 10 and 12 from Psalm 102. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. You remain the same and your years will never end. You see, the angels are servants. But Jesus is the king. He's the eternal ruler of the universe that he created with his own hands. Not only that, but as eternal king, he also provides us with the best example, verses 8 and 9. Again, from Psalm 45, the author says about Jesus, Righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So are you looking for a role model? But Jesus loved doing right. He loved righteousness. There's no better example. Angels seem to be given some kind of free will. Some of them turned out to be bad, didn't they? But there's no question about the morality of Jesus. He loved righteousness. At this point, we need to pause and just think a little bit about how the author uses the Old Testament scripture here, and particularly the Psalms. It's just amazing, isn't it? Just reflect on that, that he feels no embarrassment, no shame about taking these Old Testament Psalms, which were originally applied to Almighty God. And applying them to Jesus, he takes Scripture that says uh, says thing about Almighty God, talks about Almighty God as Creator, and as King and as Ruler, and he applies them to affirm Christ's deity, His rule, and His action in creation. Can he do that? Well, I think he can. It's interesting, isn't it? Because firstly, he believes that the Old Testament is a profoundly Christ-centered book. He sees Christ in all its pages, just as Philip did when he spoke to the uh, Ethiopian uh, in the chariot and explained Isaiah 53 to him in terms of Christ. And our author also recognizes the the abiding relevance of the Old Testament. As one commentator wrote about this, he said, The author of Hebrews, the message of the Old Testament, was not locked away in remote antiquity, providing merely an historical account of God's dealings with Israel. Its teaching about ceremonial and sacrifices richly fulfilled in Christ. Its message to the covenant community about God's reliability, faithfulness and love was as relevant to those first century Christians as when the promises were first made in Old Testament times. So he sees Christ throughout the Old Testament and he sees the relevance of the Old Testament to our lives too and we should do that as well. And we'll see that truth coming out many, many times as we study the rest of the book of Hebrews. So Jesus is better than the angels because he's the unique son of God and because Jesus is the eternal king of the universe. Thirdly, Jesus is the only saviour of God's people. Verse 13, from Psalm 110, our author speaks of God's invitation to Jesus to come and sit at my right hand. It reminds us of what he said a few verses earlier in verse 3, where he says, after he had provided purification for sins... He sat down. Once I finish the sermon, I, uh, I get to go and sit down. But not until then. You don't get to sit down until your work is done. And what this verse is saying is that Jesus has done his work. Jesus has already brought salvation to his people. He has provided for the purification of our sins. He's earned for us a new relationship with God by his death and his resurrection. His work on earth is finished and now he can sit down next to God but he doesn't stop there because he continues he continues with his passion of speaking to God on our behalf on behalf of everyone who accepts the offer of salvation he's saying to God yes I know him yes I know her they put their trust in me they're forgiven there's no sin on them and he will sit there, next to God, speaking to God on our behalf, until God makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. You see, in short, in verse 14, our writer concludes, he says, Jesus is better than the angels because angels are sent to serve before, serve both God and those who inherit salvation. That's us, that's you and me. They speak to us on behalf of God, they minister to us on behalf of God. They mediate God's law to us. But it is Christ who has announced the coming of the new kingdom, who has bought salvation for us. He is the saviour. We've inherited that salvation from him. We've been adopted as children of God because of what he's done for us. And the angels simply serve both God and us. So Jesus is far better than the angels because he's the unique son of God, The eternal King of the universe and the only Saviour of God's people. So says our author, we should pay attention to what we have heard about Jesus so that we do not drift away. You see, we don't want to lose sight of what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what He's done for us. We don't want to lose sight of uh, who He is as the JWs have done. He's simply the best messenger and the best message ever a better bit of butter on your knife. So why do we need to listen to this? Well, it's not just some minor debating point or some academic uh, interest. It's not what the uh, medieval scholars used to uh, talk about, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Have you heard that? It's not about whether Jesus is just another spiritual leader on a power of Gandhi or Muhammad. It's not about whether the sayings attributed to Jesus could really be original quotes uh, of a first century uneducated carpenter. Or it's not really about whether Jesus should be part of our lives, which we juggle alongside other important issues like our education, our home life, our work, our politics and so on. No, this is about your response to Jesus, the unique son of God, the eternal king of the universe, the only saviour of God's people. And your answer to those issues is of eternal significance. Chapter 2 and verse 3 says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? You see, you weren't eyewitnesses to it. You didn't meet Jesus face to face. Nor did the writer to the Hebrews, nor did the people who received his letter. They'd just heard about it from others, just as we do. And yet the issues that Jesus raised in their lives and raised in our lives cannot just be ignored. We have to respond to them. Who is this Jesus? What did he come to do? Are we going to build our lives on the rock or on the shifting sands like the builder, who, the foolish man who built his house on the sand? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that at some point during our lives, for most of us here, there was a time when we recognized Jesus as the Son of God, the eternal King and our Saviour. Lord, we pray that you would maintain our faith strong in him, help us to remember his unique qualities, his unique uh, uh, divine nature, help us to remember his unique salvation that no other religion can offer. Help us, Lord, to, uh, when we uh, see our friends and uh, people we know struggling with these kind of questions, help us to, to get alongside them, to support them, to answer uh, their doubts and their fears. Help us to love them as they struggle, Lord. Lord, I pray that in our lives we might be people of firm faith, people who build our lives on the rock, people who are sure of our salvation, and people who are willing to make you king and lord of all of our lives, every area of our lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen.